This is Dave. And Jake. Thanks for listening today. We really appreciate it. Hey, please share this episode with a friend. Also, leave us a review and follow our podcast. We're just some old geezers that really need the help. Today we have an interesting topic, sort of a look back at how our world has changed in the last couple of generations. Because for most of humanity, essentially hundreds of thousands of years, the human race was pretty much just a simple hunter-gatherer lifestyle. Unless, of course... You believe in ancient, advanced civilizations, which I do. And I do, too. <laughs> That's a whole other episode right. that we're actually working on, so stay tuned for that one. But in the last hundred years or so, the rate of cultural and societal change has been rapid and even scary, and that's what we're going to take a look at today. So for the first time since World War I took so many young lives in 1921, Life expectancy has gone down in the U.S., the recent drop by a full year from 77 years old to 76 years old. The percent of the population that is 75 or older is 29% in the U.S., and 85 years or older is 14%. You know, I went to thought, that seems high. I went to thought it, it was does. that high. We double-checked, and it does show four, 13 to 14%, so it's in that ballpark. And it said for 65%. Or 65 years of age, it's like 58%. Yeah. So those bastards can't take our Social Security. (laughs) Right. Now, for folks born between 1930 that are about 90 years old now and 50 that are 73 years old now, uh, the special group equals 20 years. And are you at or do you know someone that is in that age group? My brother would fall into that age There you go. So some interesting facts for you. You are the smallest group of children born since the early 1900s. You are the last generation climbing out of the Depression who can remember the winds of war and the impact of world at war that rattled the structure of our daily lives for years. And you are the last to remember ration books from everything from gas to sugar to shoes to stoves. You know, I remember seeing those old ration books that my parents had saved, but there I don't think there was any rationing going on when I was young, and I was born in 1958. Our current society experienced a very small taste of rationing in 2020 when the COVID pandemic first hit, but mostly that was with toilet paper. <laughs> yeah. And it wasn't true rationing. <laughs> no. I don't, there wasn't really a shortage. People just hoarded it's like some. a rush on the store for toilet paper. <laughs> Where in the world wars, there was rationing on many products, and that lasted for years because all resources went towards the war. And so you saved little bits of tinfoil. I can remember my grandma would never throw away tinfoil. She'd wash it. And you poured fried meat fat into tin cans. Now, that we did in our family when I was a little kid. And I can remember eating radish sandwiches, which were was bread, radishes, and on there we couldn't afford butter. And so we used lard, which was the, the ren- fat rendered grease fat. Uh-huh. Yeah. You used to see cars up on blocks because tires weren't available. 
and you can remember milk being delivered to your house early in the morning and placed in the milk box on the porch. The ice cream truck came through the neighborhood, and I do remember those two things. And besides that, we also got ice delivered and put in a huge block, one big block of ice. Guy came with a big tongs and picked it up. Did you ever remember that, Jake? No, we never had that back when I was growing up. Probably it was too hot in California to well, have an ice box. You'd have there. a puddle of water on your porch <laughs> by the time you got to it. So no one had an electric fridge. This was just a thing that sat out on the porch, and it was essentially like a big metal cooler. And the ice man came and put a big chunk of ice in there, and then when you needed some ice, you chipped it off with a ice pick. You never see an ice pick anymore. No, no, unless you're picking your driveway from the ice and the (laughs) snow on it. You know, you saw the boys come home from World War II and build their little houses, and it made them so happy. So up until recently, there were, and I don't think those are here anymore, and now I want to drive by and look, but there were still some Quonset hut-type houses right in town here, and those were government-built houses that were available to vets at low loan rates. Do you know what I'm talking about, Jake? Yeah. They're like a metal. Do they have those in your town as no, well? No, not that I remember. I might have been a little bit past that too. I don't know. So the government gave returning veterans the means to get an education, and that uh, spurred colleges to grow. And then those loans fanned a housing boom. Oh, for sure. And you were also the last generation to spend your childhood without television. Instead, you had to imagine what was going on by listening to the radio. There were likely only two or three stations that you could get. You read library books and played in the streets with your friends. With no TV until 1950, you spent your childhood playing outside. There are a few city playgrounds for kids, but you organized neighborhood baseball, football games on some vacant lots, and you rode your bikes all over the place. Man, I rode my bike everywhere. We played a game called Kick the Can a lot. Did you play that one? No, I can't remember playing Kick the Can, but I'm sure we were entertained ourselves by kicking something. It was kind of a cheap form of baseball without a baseball bat, actually. (laughs) So imagine no television. Most people alive today can't imagine that. But the lack of television in your early years meant that you had little real understanding of what was going on out there in the world. And you got to wonder, weren't we better off for not knowing rather than being bombarded by media hype and sensationalism? I think so. So just think, you had very little idea of what the local weather forecast was going to be in your area, let alone anywhere else in the country or the world. Yeah, you just had to look outside and see what the weather was doing. That was pretty much it. That was your weather report. um, I think the constant bombardment of images of destruction, war, upheaval, it contributes to our general sense of anxiety in today's world. Yeah, if you think about it, it really does. You cause... know, we, we sit there and we see these hurricanes, and there was recently some tornadoes in Mississippi, and you're shocked by that stuff. In Back in this era, which really is only 70 years ago, you would have never even known that was taking place. Right. And on Saturday mornings and afternoons, the movies is where you went. It gave you newsreels, which were... <laughs> little films of news but imagine it took months to put these together and actually get them yeah. out to the movies so it wasn't exactly news it was more like olds yeah oh, it was history at that time it, yeah it was sandwiched in between westerns and cartoons right so you didn't see news like you do now you know in telephones that was a lot different back then than it is now there was one to every household and oftentimes you shared it with a party line hung on the wall in the kitchen so you didn't have any privacy. You had to talk in front of your parents or your guests or whoever. You couldn't carry the phone to your bedroom or hide in the garage or something like that. You know, computers were called calculators, and they were hand cranks. So we had a party line at our house. Did you ever have one of those? Nope, never had So one. you'd pick up the phone, 
and there'd be two people talking on there. And if you did it quiet enough, they didn't know you were listening. Mm-hmm. And so that was really where gossip <laughs> got its start. Gossip you know, you'd was hear, invented. Oh, my God, Marilyn down the street had a visit from the milkman <laughs> the other day. <laughs> and that's how you get your gossip. Now, uh, the other lady who had all the gossip was the switchboard operator oh, yeah. at the phone company because she actually plugged a wire in so you could have a phone connection. Sure. And if she wanted, she could listen too. So yeah. she had all the gossip. She had the whole neighborhood down. <laughs> now, I don't remember hand-cranked uh, calculators, though. Do no, I don't, I don't either. But I know they were out uh, probably before our time then. You know, but typewriters, uh, they were driven by pounding your fingers through the carriage and then changing the ribbon. <laughs> yeah, it really worked up your finger muscles, I'm sure, doing that instead of just barely touching like you do on a keyboard now. Internet and Google were words that did not exist. Newspapers and magazines were written for adults, and the news was broadcast on the radio in the evening. Kids just read comic books. I had a million of them. Yeah, pent-up demand after the war, coupled with the installment payment plan, opened the many factories for work. Credit was new. Before that, you couldn't really give credit. Right. And then they had to build new highways that brought jobs and mobility to to everybody. Veterans joined civic clubs and became active in politics. Your parents were suddenly free from the confines of depression and war. So in terms of how kids were raised, we weren't neglected, but you weren't today's all-consuming family focus. Now you're a soccer mom or whatever. Mm -hmm. My mom wasn't going to be a soccer mom. They were glad you played by yourselves until the streetlights came on. I'd leave the house in the morning in the summer. Nobody knew where the hell we were all day long. And actually, nobody worried about that even. There was a common saying when I was growing up. Do you remember this one, Jake? Children Mm -hmm. should be seen but not heard. Oh, yeah, I've heard that a number of times (laughs) when I was growing up. Because you weren't even supposed to engage with adults unless they spoke to you first. You didn't just get to come up and talk to adult people. We definitely weren't in charge, that's for sure. (laughs) So for that age group, they finally entered a world of overflowing plenty and opportunity, a world where they were welcomed, enjoyed yourself, and felt secure in the future, unlike now where everybody, including my kids, were in their Mm mid-20s. They don't feel secure in the Mm -hmm. future. They feel doomed. Well, and hopefully this podcast is going to help them out and tell them where they're going to be in 50 to 70 (laughs) years from now, a little later on. But, you know, polo was still a crippling disease. Polio was still a... Crippling disease back then. Do you remember anybody having that? Yeah, yeah. Some lady at yeah. our church had it, and she oh, was yeah. in a wheelchair, and it wasn't it wasn't uh, wasn't pretty. So, and then you came of age in the fifties and sixties. Now that would be a cool time to come of age. You know, thinking of music and things like that. That oh, was yeah. like everything was brand new and just going strong. You were the last generation to experience an interlude when there was no threats to our homeland. Other countries hadn't developed the nuclear weapon yet. And even sophisticated planes or ships that could attack the U.S. on our home soil. Yeah, nobody was going to mess with us. The Second World War was over. The Cold War terrorism, global warming, and the perpetual economic insecurities had not yet caused unease. Only that generation can remember both a time of great war and a time when the world was secure and full of bright promise and plenty. So I think that generation, which it was about a 20-year period, they grew up in really the best possible time, and mm-hmm. the world was getting better. And I know my brother and brother-in-law, who are both in this group here, will tell me that. They think that they grew up in the best possible time. 
So for the purposes of that, we're going to call them the last ones. They're the last ones that grew up in a time mm-hmm. um, where everything was looking better. And now more than 99% of them are either retired or deceased, but the rest that are there feel privileged to have lived in the best of times. Right. You know, that age group had much stronger belief in God, too. Oh, the, for sure. The threat of retribution in the afterlife kept people in line. We didn't have the shootings, the violence we have now. Science had not yet discovered much about the outer about outer space. We literally thought there was little green men on the moon and Mars. <laughs> Remember that, like the yeah. original sci-fi movies. The little they always were green little. Yeah. <laughs> green of little course, guys. they still were men. Oh, of course. Now we wonder if there were any other civilizations in the vast expanse of the universe. Kind of creates a hopeless feeling. Well, yeah, you know, I watch a lot of astronomy stuff, and they often talk about the distances between stars are so great, they don't think there could ever be a way we could actually communicate with a different civilization if there was one out there. So to me, it was kind of hopeful. Like you always thought the people from Mars were going to come down and kind of save us. Mm -hmm. They were going to be more advanced and show us a way forward. Now it's like we're just doomed and out there alone. (laughs) You know, back in that era, there was a strict hierarchy of rule following. First of all, you followed God's rules. Then you had your parents' rules, school's rules, work rules, society rules. There was no questions asked about any of that. You followed the rules. Now it's all about the individual freedoms. And to me, that's at the expense of anyone else. We've gone a little too far in that direction, and I think for that reason, people seem kind of lost. Well, there's not a lot of structure out there. Right. You know, there's so many different things. Now, after uh, the Great Depression, scarcity was common on some things. So at that point, very few people had money. A car was a luxury. Jobs could be scarce at times. Only rich people went to college. And food was so different back then. It was grown fresh and raised locally. You knew the guy that was raising the chickens. Or you had them on your own little piece of property. My grandma had her own chickens right in town here. Mm -hmm. Now it's all trucked across the continent. And... Potentially, that whole system could collapse at at some point due to a number of different factors. Back then, you were still always going to be able to eat. Mm -hmm. So it was certainly a different world than today's world. Look at how medicine has changed. So now the new trend is towards what's called transhumanism. And that's where part of you will literally literally be mechanized and computerized. And I bet there'll start to be discrimination between these two groups, both of whom will regard the other as less human. So for people who are got a ton of moving parts and computerized brain, people who don't will discriminate against them. And for those who do have the upgrades, let's call it the software <laughs> upgrades, they'll discriminate against those of us who don't have that yet. So I see that as a new form of discrimination. But <laughs> where do you think medicine will be like in like 70 years? You know, I did check into that, and this is what I found. Some experts say in the future, more than 15 years, but not as long as 70 years, there'll be a revolutionary convergence of different trends pulled from technology, behavioral, and social changes, and medical advances understand how they will converge to transform society. These transformations will be messy, complex, and sometimes scary, but signals already point to the future of humanity that will be blurred our identities into, like you said, transhumanism. You're right. That is scary. Yeah, I know. Here's a few things that that, that came up, and there's actually seven points uh, of where this is headed. Uh, number one, a number of body augmentations capable that will enable humans to be smarter, stronger, 
and more capable than they are today. So we're seeing some of that already. Unfortunately, the military is leading the charge on that. Right. So I'm seeing about like super soldiers. Mm -hmm. Oh, good God. Yeah. Now, number two, wearable and implantable brain-machine interfaces called BMIs are in development from organizations that include Elon Musk's Nutrilink, Facebook, and Dropoff. Now, have you heard about Neuralink? No, I haven't. Oh, I've seen some shows with Elon Musk, and it it literally is a thing you put in your brain that enables you to think better. To think better. Yeah. So it like it, it well, think provides of it as a, a chip. A, a chip, chip in your brain. Yeah. Well, you know, that's kind of where it may be going with artificial intelligence and planted right in. So uh, these devices will dramatically alter the way in which we communicate with each other as well as with the digital devices. Now, now, see, my issue with the chip is that not only is it, they're, they're going to put something in there to make you think the way oh, they want you sure. to think. sure, yeah. They, and then they could probably have it dynamic and change it whenever they want to. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm ready for that yet. Uh, now, here's another one, gamification. Gamification? Gamification. And behavioral science will increase human productivity, basically taking the gaming technology rewards theory and take that to the workplace. Yeah, see rewards. If you don't do it our way, you don't get <laughs> yeah, All right. Number four, adoption of virtual reality can play an influential role in our ability to understand perspectives of others and result in people being more empathetic. Well, that's good. If, yeah. As long as we get the well, shoes were empathetic. It'll help you see their side of the story yes, exactly. a little bit. You know? yeah. so, now, number five, uh, we'll see the emergence of extreme personalization and customization. For example, in addition to location and past purchase history, marketers may be able to use emotional filters based on our activity to change the tone of their message on the spot in response to our current mood. Oh, I knew marketing had to get involved at some point. That's going to be creepy. <laughs> Number six, business shifts. Uh, you know, we'll see much more use of AI or artificial intelligence, and we'll focus it on smart factories, industrial internet of things, and related topics. Number seven, human values. As these widespread and revolutionary technologies come to us from every angle and affect our bodies, thought processes, and behaviors, society will engage in growing philosophical debates around what the values are for individuals, the values for countries, and the values of the species itself. What do we value most? Is it intelligence, self-fulfillment, success, happiness, quality of life, or something else? You know, generally, I kind of like that idea because I see all this strife on the news and everything. Yet people, most people I know, all want the same things. The The danger here, though, is that pretty soon, you know, somebody's got to be in charge, and they're going to start telling you what the most important thing right. is, yeah. <laughs> which is kissing their ass. Well, then you start <laughs> losing your freedom, and that's not good either, so. All right, well, that was pretty heavy stuff. Yeah. So let's go back now to something... Uh, that I actually had a conversation with my daughter about once, and that is in 1950, which is the end of this period we're talking about here, rock and roll did not even exist. So electric instruments were really rare, and it was big band music on the radio or on 78 RPM records. Remember 78s? Oh, yeah, yep. So how do you think we'll access music in 70 years, Jake? Well, you know, access music and where music will come from, I think, is going to change a lot. 
just like it did in the last 70. So if you really think about it, today's music isn't all that different than it will, in structure and lyrics than from the 50s. Now, there's a little more constant F-bombing in some of the rap songs, but you know, back in the day, there was some F-bombs in some of those older songs, too. <laughs> yeah, I got some old blues songs from the yeah. 20s that are pretty dirty. Yeah, and by the time we could hear it on the radio, the Big Brother censored <laughs> a lot of that stuff out. Yeah, for sure. You know, and also, I don't think the use of computers is such a big deal. Most bands use it to improve or slightly change the sound of what they've already got in their instruments. So I don't think it's going to dominate the general sound of the song. And if music was ever going to be essentially electronic, it would probably would have done that by now. Well, techno and some rap stuff really doesn't use any analog right. instruments. Right. And, you know, I don't think that's going to stick. That's maybe a fad right now. But the three to four minute song that we're so used to is probably going to be here for a long, long time because it's practical and it's easy to listen to in a lot of situations. Plus we have a short attention span. <laughs> that's true. What, ha what, what has changed and will continue is the number of people making music. Technology has allowed that to happen, and broadcasting it will continue to expand. More and more people can access it for free. That means 70 years from now, music will not be big business like it was the last 70 years. But it will be more of an art, and the performers are artists that will do it just for the joy of doing it, and not so much to make money and make a living on it, kind of like the geezers do. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> now, what about food? So right now, there's a trend towards plant-based foods because they're supposedly easier on the environment than growing animals for consumption. But what will we be having for dinner in 70 years? Global consumption of fruits, vegetables, nuts, and legumes will have to double. The consumption of foods such as red meat and sugar will have to be reduced to more than 50%. A diet rich in plant-based food with fewer animal sources foods confers with both improved health and environmental benefits. Just like you said, also, here's what's predicted to be new food sources in the future. Are you ready for this? Algae, seaweed, beans, legumes, nuts, wild grains, lab-grown meats. Oh. Yeah, that's it. said. I know. I've seen this on TV. Now, false bananas. Now, this is interesting. What? I looked now, this, this one I don't bit. know. Yeah, there was a banana tree that's been developed in Ethiopia, and it's called Tree Against Hunger. It's kind of a super hybrid banana that has a lot of nutrients, and you eat like one of these bananas to 10 bananas, and it's really helping the, the hunger issue in Ethiopia. So watch out for false bananas because it could be a new banana for the future. <laughs> Sounds like a band name. <laughs> yeah. Insects and heat-resistant coffee, and that's mainly due to the uh, climate changes and the rainforest. They have to have a heat-resistant coffee that they can grow down there because it's gotten so hot. Now, insects are already a huge source of protein all around the world. And I yeah. know in the U.S., people are disgusted by that. <laughs> but even in Mexico, a lot of areas of South America, Asia, because I watch all these crazy food shows, but you go to the market and there's all kinds of dried insects. Um, I buy a thing from Margaritas. You may have had it at my house. Um, and you can get it in Texas. That's where I got it. And instead of salt for your margarita oh, grass, yeah. it's crushed up grasshoppers. Is that right? Yeah. And uh, they have a cricket one. They also have one out of the small worms. Because all these are very salty things. All you got to do is dry them. Yeah. So um, I actually use this at home. And I can't say I've eaten much in the way of insects, but I would love to. My daughter always wants to try them too. Yeah. But I, if we were to go to an open-air market like that and they were to have that kind of stuff, I'd love to try some of that stuff. I'm not grossed out by 
I wouldn't mind it either. You but know? I'm not grossed up by any natural food. Yeah. But the lab-grown meat. I did see a show about that on TV. Oh, man, I don't know. <laughs> okay, enough of that. You know, our big thing, we did a, a little bit about this on our episode from 1969, was that a man had went to the moon. Right. And we just thought that was going to continue. There'd be a base up there. And, of course, now they're starting to look at that again for freaking military purposes. <laughs> of of course. course. But do you think we'll ever have a base on the moon or Mars in the next 70 years? Because sooner or later, an asteroid impact could end civilization or even snuff out humanity completely. And if we're going to spread out, we have to keep this human species going. If we do discover life on other planets, does that spell the end of the classic religions here on Earth? Well, those are some big questions. Um, I did a, a little bit of research on it, and actually it could be a whole episode or it could be a whole new series for Geezer Life, so stay tuned. But uh, what I found is it turns out that the stars like our sun may not have to be alive and thriving to sustain life. Scientists say they have discovered a possible major planet orbiting a dying sun that could potentially support life for generations to come like a billion years. Researchers from the University College of London made an unexpected discovery while observing a white dwarf, and a white dwarf is a, what the glowing remains of a star that ran out of hydrogen. Trouble is, it's 117 light years away. The particular star known as WD 1054-226 has a ring of planetary debris in the orbital habitat zone, which is otherwise known as the Goldilocks zone, where the temperature should be in theory allow the planet to have liquid on the surface, like water on the surface. If the object discovered is confirmed to be life-supporting planet, it would mark the first time a life-supporting planet has been found orbiting a dying sun. Scientists made the discovery while measuring light from the white dwarf and published their findings in the monthly notice of the Royal Astronomical Society. They said that the, they found pronounced dips in light that correspond to 65 evenly spaced clouds and debris that orbit WD 1054-226 every 25 hours. Does that sound kind of familiar? But don't pack your bags yet. The possibility of of major planet in the star zone is exciting, but the st stress such a planet is not yet confirmed. Experts say they still need to do more evidence, which may be difficult because they can't directly observe the planet. Instead, they'll probably have to rely on computer modules and other observations of the star to obtain more information for a clear answer. You know, getting there also is a problem, 117 light years away. But 70 years from now, that may be a snap of a finger. Who wormhole, knows? baby. Wormhole. <laughs> Now, as we always say here on our podcast, we're basically 14-year-old boys in 65-year-old bodies. <laughs> so you know this was coming, Jake. I got to ask you, what will sex be like in 70 years? All right. Well, this one's interesting. <laughs> uh, experts claim in the far future we'll have matchmaking software based on artificial intelligence. They'll find the perfect match for you. In short, soulmate that you've been looking for based on your personality, characteristics, taste, and interest. Also, during the meeting, you'll be able to receive information in real time about your performance. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. 
Augmented reality glasses will provide the data you need to know what you need to know, which is double yikes. <laughs> so virtual <laughs> sex. Yeah. It will even possibly, it'll even be possible to know how the person is feeling or even what they're thinking about Ooh. you observed through their pupil dilation of AR cameras. Triple yikes. Oh, God. I thought this was going to be better. Oh. That works. Well, you know, research beyond that gets pretty scary. And I don't even want to plan any crazy ideas in your head or our listeners' heads. <laughs> See, I was thinking I'd just get a transhuman junk replacement. <laughs> yeah. And then I'd move to the Mars colony. Mm -hmm. I'd eat plant-based food. And I'd help populate the human race on Mars. So it's like, <laughs> put me to pasture on Mars, baby. <laughs> Oh. Now, what about water? Here in Wisconsin, we live by one of the greatest concentrations of fresh water in the world. And uh, the more I see some of these water shortages out west, the more I feel good about that. But I think this is going to become a super valuable resource and possibly even wars fought over it. But it, we got to learn how to desalinize water affordably. Right, yeah. So much Water is now polluted and undrinkable. You know, when I was in my 20s, we used to drink right out of the trout stream up north. And that was not 70 years ago. That was 30, 40 years ago. Right. Well, you know, the experts that say that the water supply is growing concern, and most of the fresh water is used for irrigation to grow food. Uh, but the good news is you can't destroy water. You can't destroy the H2O molecule. So as much water as we have right now, we're going to have 70 years from now. Now, the unfortunate thing that even though you can't destroy it, destroy it, you can't pollute it and make it unusable. And so left unchecked, the future is not pretty. However, there are things being done to prevent water shortages. An example is in Israel, which views water, water availability as a national security issue or national security risk. By recycling fluent water, including household sewage, Nishande water Way treatment facility in Tel Aviv supplies approximately 140 million cubic meters of water per year for agriculture use, covering 50,000 acres of ir irrigated land. That's over 40% of Israel's agricultural water needs and now supplied by that recycled water. The waste sludge is also sent up to a specific plant that uses it, uses the methane fuel to produce renewable energy. So if Israel can do it, a country located in the desert, it proves that with the right technology, economic resources, and political determinations, other countries can make it happen too. Even more mind-blowing is Israel's water treatment system recaptures 86% of all wastewater that goes down the drain. The next best country performer is Spain, and that's only at 19%. Wow. You know, when we go to Austin, they play a sub public service announcement on the radio there, and it says, watch your water, watch your water, like it was your son or daughter. Oh. So the they don't want you, like, brushing your teeth with the water running Right. Yeah. So. I think it's all in the treatment plants and getting the right focus on that. But, it, it, it you know, Israel's proving that it's possible. So. Now, you're my first friend that has an electric car. But from what I'm reading and seeing, even those are super hard on the environment and, of course, the brand-new electrical grid. Right. So how are we going to get around on land and air in 70 years? Well, here's what I found. By 2050, sales of electric vehicles, EVs, will reach 62 million units per year with a global stock of 700 million EVs. In terms of total sales, EVs will account for about 56% of the global market. In like 25 years. Yeah. 
and that's outpacing in internal combustion engine vehicles, which will account for about 44%. This transition will be accompanied by drastic change in the nature of the infrastructure. There'll be charging stations will become more common than gas stations by 2050, and will benefit from growing use of renewable energy and smart grid technology. By 2050, the U.S. Energy Information Administration anticipates that 49% of the global electricity will come from renewable sources, mainly wind and solar, followed by natural gas, coal, and nuclear. Also, between now and 2050, other technologies and trends will accelerate and lead to the creation of new transportation infrastructure, radically different from what we know today. All told, the following factors will contribute to the revolution. Urban sprawl and clean energy, electric vehicle infrastructure, hyperloops and high-speed high trains, smart highways and transit systems, and point-to-point suborbitable flights. Now, as we record this podcast today, there was another mass shooting in the U.S. just a day or two ago. This one happened to be in Nashville. But I'm wondering, how are we ever going to get past gun violence? Because there are more guns than people now in this country. And I talk about this with my wife a lot. They, they can't go around and confiscate these things. Would you like to take a job knocking on people's doors saying, hey, I'm here to get your gun? Right. I don't, I don't think that's going to be a good career choice. So that's not going to work. How are the, Even if they quit manufacturing them today, what's going to happen with all these that are currently out there? Well, you know, it is getting worse, not better. I sure wish they could f- figure something out, but I looked into it, and here's what Dr. Lisa Gold, who's a clinical professor and psychiatrist at the Georgetown University School of Medicine, has to say about that. She says, there are no magic solutions, but there are solutions. And here are her top six recommendations. Number one, buying a gun should be like buying a car. And she kind of reflected like that, that 50 years ago, there was a lot more car accidents and death than there are today, mainly because of more regimented safety for automobiles and better training for drivers. To start with, they can put in effect more rigorous requirements for owning firearms. For the most part, it's much easier to to be a legal gun owner in America than it is to be a legal driver. So training and better technology when it comes to that. Number two, Pass gun laws that actually reduce gun violence, which is basically more intense background checks. Number three, doctors can play a key role in educating families about gun safety, particularly when it comes to keeping guns out of the hands of children. Number four, invest in smart gun technology, kind of like a smartphone locking technology, i.e. passwords, usernames, things like that. Oh, God. I don't own a firearm. But if I did, the passwords would screw me up just like it does in this computer. It probably would deter people from owning a firearm because they'd be so frustrated. (laughs) Number five, eliminate funding restrictions on gun violence research. And then number six is end the legal immunity of gun manufacturers. Holding the manufacturers liable for the misuse of their products experts say will incentivize them to make their firearms safer. You know, if McDonald's can get sued because you spilled hot coffee on your nuts, <laughs> I, <laughs> I can't believe that a gun manufacturer can't be sued. What I'm seeing on some of this stuff you're saying here, Jake, is there's money involved in this mm-hmm. that is preventing some of these changes from oh, yeah, taking Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, i got to wonder, if we're going to keep progressing 
if that's what you call it. Would you call this progress from where we started this episode here 70 years ago? You know, yes and no, I think. you got to kind of take it uh, looking at what perspective, I suppose. So if we can keep progressing, or, or is war or societal collapse in general going to force kind of a restart of civilization? Now, you know me, I believe that's happened in the past several times, mostly due to things like asteroid impacts and super volcanoes and stuff like that. But to me, it seems almost in- inevitable. We're going to be brought to our knees by something again and basically have to start over. But do you think we can actually progress out of this into a newer type of society? Well, you know, I'm not sure we can progress out of it, but hopefully we have enough people inventing things that will control it but not control things too much that that may help. And actually, our progress today may actually be behind what past civilizations may have already achieved, but somehow got destroyed thousands of years ago, kind of like what you're saying. But that can wait for another episode. So in conclusion, if you like this one, please share it with a friend. Now, if you don't like it and it's a little too edgy for you, then send us some ideas of what you would like us to cover. Either way, we're not letting you off the hook. Contact us at email, thegeezerlife at gmail.com, on Facebook at The Geezer Life, or Instagram, The Geezer Life Podcast. Thanks again for tuning in. Geezer Life is written, directed, produced, and edited by Dave and Jake. We do it all ourselves, except when we have to reach out to younger people to help us remember what buttons to push. If you enjoy our podcast, please like and subscribe, and even leave us a review. Let us know what topics you would like to see us address here on Geezer Life. We could really use the support so we don't have to live out our final years camping under a bridge, which is a really hard place to do a podcast from. Yeah, help us get better, because we're working hard at it when we could be napping instead. We now have several ways to contact us. Email at thegeezerlife at gmail.com, Facebook at thegeezerlife, and Instagram, thegeezerlifepodcast. Until then, see you next time, unless we keel over in the meantime. So eliminate the worry, eliminate the strife. It's time to have your fun. It's the geezer life.